Hey, hey everyone. Welcome to Home Energy Design. How to design a beautiful home and life and make sure it's energy aligned. I'm your host, Amanda Gates, and I'm an interior designer and feng shui practitioner. And these combined skills have made me a floor plan reading expert. Energy design is like astrology for your home and your life. And who doesn't want more of that? I believe in all things pretty. In fact, my team and I love the pretty. But what makes my firm different is that we can help you create designs that are also energy aligned to help you get the home and life you've always dreamed of. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, hey everyone. Welcome to Home Energy Design. I'm your host, Amanda Gates, and today's bonus guest is architect Doug Farr. Now, the reason that I wanted to have Doug on the show is that like me, He is being quite sagacious in his everyday habits to be more eco. His new book, Sustainable Nation, goes way beyond my book, Easy Everyday Habits, and gets into the nitty gritty of why we must start building a sustainable nation, like right now. Not just talking about, not just making documentaries about, but making hard, acute decisions today to better our future for generations to come. One of my favorite paragraphs from the book, by allowing ourselves to tune out the time-wasting static of digital noise, to focus our attention solely on the well-being of the places we inhabit and the people we share them with, is how we will focus on local rather than national action. The talking heads we most need are not on TV, but rather our neighbors talking across the fences. Oh, I love that. He and I are consciously leading the way to change, albeit his version is way more researched and detailed, whereas my book is just like the lazy man's guide to getting your ass started. (laughs) But my favorite, favorite chapter of all from Doug's book is chapter six, He has the entire chapter devoted to how we can attain our preferred future in just four generations. I have read a lot of eco books over the years, along with many articles that blame and shame us for our capricious ways. But for the first time, this author has taken action and showing us how we can make shit happen and get as close to zero as possible. Today, he and I will discuss why he wrote this book, how change really can occur, like really occur, and why our decisions today greatly affect our future in as little as 50 years. This was a great conversation and I cannot wait to share it with you. All right, are you ready? Let's do this. I want to welcome Doug Farr to the show today. I'm excited to uh, talk to him. He is an architect out of Chicago, and uh, we are kindred spirits because he, like uh, me, is into uh, how we can really change our ways, make things much more sustainable, um, and really kind of reverse engineer how we've been living for the last, I don't know, 50 to 100 years. (laughs) Sounds about right. Amanda, Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome to the show. Um, before we dive into this amazing book, what I, I really uh, was curious about is uh, what I believe, you know, we are in this kind of critical mass with our planet, but 
Before we dive into that, what I'd really like to know is, which we were just talking a little bit before the show, but how did you finally land on architecture? Uh, well, good, good day, Amanda. Thanks for having me on the show. So that's a great question. So architecture was the 11th undergraduate major I had. So I started out in the hard sciences and the soft sciences. And had I not taken that academic journey back in the, dare I say, 1970s, I would not have been able to work with so many smart people to pr produce a book as comprehensive and beautiful as the one before you. And I hope your listeners can see Sustainable Nation, Urban Design Patterns for the Future. But I, we use our practice of architecture really as a platform for accelerating social change. We do sustainable architecture and urban design placemaking. Um, and we find that we are influencing people in ways that we sometimes understand and sometimes don't understand. And that was a lot of the emphasis for the book. I think that's great. I'm curious, have you always lived in Chicago? No, I'm a, De I'm a Detroit native. Um, I happen to live in Chicago. I, you know, if somehow life called me home, I would go home in a second. But I've always been a northern guy. Um, so I'm honored to be speaking to someone in the south. So, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, but I do, do travel a lot. Um, I, my, this is my second book. My first book, I know I gave lectures in 34 states. Um, and expect to probably repeat that. So if anybody's listening and, you know, just watch, watch the, watch for me to come by sometime and talk about it. Yeah, I definitely think that this is a important conversation. It's, you know, um, I, I was just mentioning to Doug, mine is the, the one that I launched is not nearly as comprehensive. I actually think, which I don't know if it is, perhaps it is, it should be a textbook. Um, I was thinking that when I went through design school, this is a textbook that I wish that I would have had when I was going through design school. Yeah. Um, definitely for architecture, but I'm curious when I got into uh, design school, the reason that I had actually uh, decided to go to design school was that I was very passionate about uh, feng shui and I didn't really know, you know, there were no schools, there were no place to go. So I was like, well, what's the most logical thing? I guess I'll just go to design school. Mm -hmm. um, so this idea of sustainable living, um, this idea of me going into people's homes, helping them do new builds, helping me put products in their home. Uh, it wasn't on the forefront of my mind that it needed to be green building products or that I needed to be sustainable. I have now gotten there, but I'm curious at what point in your career did building green and becoming LEED certified really become, you know, a passion and really your purpose? Yeah. So uh, growing up in Detroit in the 1970s, there were two things that uh, were instilled in me as a teenager. One was that I loved cities and the only one I knew was Detroit and it was in steady decline. And so part of me was, part of my kind of journey professionally was to find work that I could do that would help cities and, and kind of always as the hidden agenda to help Detroit. The second thing that was true for me in my teens was Detroit made gas guzzler cars in the 1970s and the Japanese car makers cleaned our clock by doubling the fuel efficiency of their cars. And so there I was at 16 year old, I was a nerdy kid that would scold my parents to turn the lights off please and things like this. So I was already, um, I didn't know it at the time, but the seeds were planted to be an urbanist and an architect with an emphasis on sustainability. Uh, in my teens, but uh, it took a long journey to get there. Well, well worth it. Now you're, you're like a fine wine. You have matured. <laughs> wow. Uh, that, that, thank you. That's a very flattering characterization. I will just say I've been at it a long time. And 
you know, have been pursue, pursuing sustainability before that word was the word that was used. So um, when I established my practice in 1990, uh, it was called environment, you know, environmental buildings, things like that. Green buildings came years later, sustainability years after that. So the terms change. Uh, what we focus on uh, shifts slightly. It's ever improving and ever clearer, but it's always been my passion. And with Sustainable Nation, I'll say the, the thing that I hope I have accomplished is to understand a couple things. One is to define success for us all. And so your work in working with individuals, homeowners, and so on with sometimes small projects or interior projects are incremental builds towards a greater whole. And so this book is sought to describe kind of the future we want and the world we want to live in. And it's one where, you know, we're all synchronized spiritually, uh, you know, equitably, all those kinds of things and sustainably. And so the book is epic and big, and it's also very granular and small with a series of urban design patterns that are available for people to be inspired by and to work towards fulfilling. Yeah, I would definitely say um, there's a lot of information that's in it. There's a lot of data in it. it you know, you, you have this side that's like, oh, there's no such thing as global warming and it's all a fad. And then, you know, you look at the data and it's like, you cannot deny yeah. what we are doing to our planet and in the state that it's in. And I was curious, you know, with this idea of, you know, you being a pretty much an environmentalist since the nineties, which we're doing it way before it was cool. Where's your level of optimism? You know, like, do you have good days and bad days? Or are you pretty much overall optimistic that we can do this? Well, Amanda, thanks for putting your finger on the kind of core issue. So I think we all feel uh, just these are sort of unsettled times, you know, regardless of your politics or your view of the world. Dramatic changes, um, leadership is kind of wobbly, all those kinds of things. And when it comes to issues like climate and are we making progress, um, again, it's, it's hard to say that the story is all good. So, but despite all that, what I see is a kind of a bigger insight that the researching and writing the book provided to me, which is to finally pull back the curtains and ask the really tough questions, like which the key one of which is what kind of schedule are we on for getting carbon out of the U.S. economy? So, you know, I, th I think your listeners are familiar with climate change, global warming. There are many contributions to it, but a big chunk of it is, you know, our lifestyles, particularly in the U.S. and other prosperous countries, spin off a lot of carbon dioxide. And so it's the question we asked is, you know, how quickly could we get CO2 out of our economy? And the way we answered that, which I would love for one of your listeners to call me up or email me and say, oh, Doug, you replicated a whole field of inquiry that's already been settled, but it was not. So what we did was looked at other trends where we could project how long a trend takes to reverse, which is what we want to do here. Um, you know, CO2 and fossil fuels weren't always part of the human equation. They really kind of came into the mainstream in the mid-19th century, so 1850, so call it 150 years ago, and we now want to get rid of it. And so it's like things like cigarette smoking, which is a trend that really started around the year 1900, for example. Cigarette rolling machines were just invented at the end of the 19th century, so we have a data set that shows that Americans started smoking around 1900, it peaked in 1993, and the trend of it going down will have it sort of uh, go away about at a slightly slower pace than it came into being. So if we 
sort of put those lines over one another, trace them and say, if we decarbonize the economy at the rate we quit smoking, what does that look like? And the answer is not a pretty one. That is to say we get carbon out of the economy by the year 2150. So hold that thought. You could start, you know, run screaming out the window and crying and throwing things and saying, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry. That would miss the point. This is the first projection we've had to say, finally, we have an answer. Well, that's not the answer none of any of us want. That's way too slow. Okay, cool. So we've got a first case scenario, which is 125 years too slow. What can we do to speed things up? And that's really what the crux of the book is. Good news is humans have been thinking about how to speed up change for millennia, centuries and millennia. And so we've, the book summarizes six known accelerants that you can apply, we have applied societally, uh, sometimes as small groups, sometimes in communities or neighborhoods, other times as individuals to speed things up. Campaigns, um, setting professional standards and ethics, uh, marketplaces, um, uh, uh, heuristics and framing, um, and uh, communities of practice are five of the six. And so uh, that's what the book is about. So I've actually come to believe that prior to this book, and I, I again, I would love, I'm humble, but I want to assert this, that I believe this is the first time anybody's put a timeline, carbon to a timeline. And it's a scary result, but it's just the start. So now we get to really design the world we want, and including the skills of designers such as yourself and many of your listeners, the skills of design apply to speeding things up as well. Anyone who's managed a project, family needs to move in in October. Well, you work towards October, you know, and you make it work and you figure out how to collapse the schedule to make it all happen. So we can do that. I actually have the optimism here to say we can do that at the scale of society on issues like carbon. And it is a lot of little things. And I'd love to talk about some of those. You want to ask questions? Okay. Yeah. So for example, you know, carbon is the aggregation, CO2 is the aggregation of a thousand, ten thousand, probably a million different separate activities that all of us do in our daily lives. And so, but there are some some that have higher points of leverage than others. So I'm an architect in Chicago. So Chicago prides itself as being the first city of architecture in the United States. We think we invented the skyscraper. We think we invented the prairie school. We invented a lot of things. We're a very proud professional culture. Um, and so we've, we believe we've taught the United States once, maybe twice, on how to design buildings, design United States and the world. But right now, the challenge we face as architects is to figure out how to design net zero buildings, buildings that don't use really any energy at all and ideally generate a lot of what they need on site uh, internally. So, but no one here knows to do that. So guess what? We can teach ourselves how to do that. So we're starting the process. Um, what we found in the book was there are a lot of smart people in a lot of great organizations working on worthy topics or towards, towards good ends. But oftentimes the, their definition of success is either lacking or non-existent. It's often never put on a timeline. So consequently, people can work at good things for the next 50 years or 100 years or 500 or 1,000 years working towards a good thing, but never having to find success, you can never put yourself out of business. So what we've learned is this idea, of, there's a thing called the theory of change, which is basically a plan to get you to a destination on a given date or time. So one that we're using in Chicago is called Carbon Free Chicago 2050. So what's, what's brilliant about that title? Well, it defines success. Car, Chicago will not use carbon for its vehicles, its buildings, or its electrical grid by 2050. 
And uh, so the, the goal and the deadline are all in the title. So we essentially reverse engineer from that and say, uh, okay, wow, 2050 is really right around the corner. Um, if we were doing a renovation, should we do one in 2018 that reduces the energy use by 10% and then do it three more times between now and 50 to get it to 100% or should we do it right the first time? So it's a, it's a really kind of um, uh, structured way of thinking about the problem and hopefully framing different decisions, more ambitious uh, investments uh, in the short term and everything we touch, thinking like let's touch it once and not have to redo it two and three times between now and then. Yeah, I think that that's really a smart. And I think that um, all of us who are kind of shouting from the, the rooftops about this idea of being sustainable, um, I think awareness is key. I, I think that people hear the information and they kind of know in the back of their mind that they need to do it, but they're not really sure what to, where to start, what to do. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is that you know, it's quite positive. It, it has an actual solution to it rather than just bitching and moaning and complaining about the problem, but yeah. you also yeah. provide, you know, uh, a solution to it, but you have everything from urban planning and how to lay it, lay it out, which I, again, I think would be fantastic as a textbook for interior design and architecture programs. Um, more sustainable ways that we can conserve energy, water conservation, um, and like you mentioned earlier, the acceleration strategies to really create change, um, which is in chapter six. It was by far my favorite chapter. Oh, um, wow, great, cool. I'm uh, curious though, in your opinion, um, what I have found is that, especially here in the South, it's not, I'm definitely starting to see people being a, a lot more open to the idea of uh, doing more greener things. Uh, one of the big things that I talked about in my book was just small little everyday things that you can do to reduce your carbon footprint. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. I had a, a, an entire chapter on carbon, but you mentioned a couple of big things that people can do for change. Yeah. But what are some things in your opinion from the book that could really yeah. help people one or two things to really start creating that change so that by 2050, we are sure. as close to a hundred percent as possible. That's a great question. So I'll start with uh, having people kind of visualize what their life will be like in 2050. So uh, even those of us who are a little older and may, may feel like we're not going to make it, let's, let's assume we will. And uh, imagine what our lifestyle is like lived carbon-free. Carbon so a few things I think will be true. One is if we own and drive vehicles, cars or trucks, whatever, they'll be electric. They'll be battery powered and they will get charged charged off the electric grid. So think ahead about that. So if, does your garage have good wiring to connect to the electrical grid into the house strong enough to charge a car? So second thing is imagine your house, just from the point of view of a house, imagine your house was so energy efficient and had some solar panels on the roof so it could meet its electrical needs on its own. Wouldn't that be great? But then let's put those two ideas together. Ideally, your the solar panels on your roof would power both your house and your car. So if you say, wow, you know, I've made my house fit efficient enough to be powered by my solar panels, you may need to go a little further and make it really, you know, more, more efficient than you thought you would have. Um, one other thing to say, and I, I know that different regions of the country have different attitudes towards climate change. Some people are skeptical, you know, the whole denier thing. I don't, I skip over that because I think this is all human 
self-interest. We it helps us all if we don't have waste. It helps us all if, even if we're wrong. And what we did was use less energy. Uh, we're all better off. But I was gonna say another thing that I would have people think about. Um, so one of the things we are doing in our architectural practice in Chicago is recognizing the fact that the climate is changing. It's not a theoretical or a hypothetical, so much so that if you're a gardener at all, you've noticed in the last 10 or 15 years how the growing zones change. So plants that used to be only southern plants can suddenly grow further north. And that's true all, you know, all through the United States. And so we have a diagram that is pinned to our wall, uh, pinned above my desk. In fact, it shows that Chicago in 2100 will have the climate of Dallas, Texas. So that's a little shocker. And so we were trained as architects on how to make a building really snug during a cold winter. We're not gonna have cold winters. And so, and lots of things change consequently. So one of the big things that uh, Southern architects have to contend with far more than we do is humidity, and insects, and we don't have that. We have a winter that kills off all the bugs and uh, to dry out all the buildings. We aren't gonna have that anymore. So there are gonna be a lot of buildings in the north that don't see humidity and bugs coming that will have to get kind of redone and torn down because they didn't see this coming. So we're trying to design our buildings for a 100 year future so that the walls and the assemblies of the buildings are suited to whatever climate is coming our way, and I'm sorry to say it is. And so. It really thinks it really changes how you think about how you design a building for what climate well it's going to be different in the future yeah and again it goes back to that idea of awareness is key and and you just you can't deny it you can no longer put your head in the sand and pretend like it's not happening um one of the things that i loved about your book is uh hammerby first Dodd, which is mm. in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, I watched uh, that community. Uh, it's got several uh, videos up on YouTube. I would encourage everybody to go over and take a look at it. Um, what I love about it is they have created a truly circular economy for water, energy, overall resources. And what I love is that the residents are ridiculously happy. They're healthier. You cannot deny that what they have created is working. So that to me is the vision of what we need to strive for. I love mm -hmm. this idea of these communities. Um, but, you know, to get to a sustainable place that can really create a community like that or communities, I mean, is it possible? Can the U.S. get yeah. to that state where we can create urban planning like that uh, and achieve that? Yeah, Amanda, that's a great point. So. I think uh, America has always been a do-it-yourself country. When you read back to history reports from the 1830s, in fact, a book called Democracy in America, we were a bootstrapping, help your neighbor, barn raising kind of place. And so we valued community. We valued relationships uh, locally with the person down the street, the person across the, you know, across, across the fence uh, to get things done, not just in the individual in isolation, but uh, communally in small groups to accomplish things. And so I think there's a hunger for community, which is a bit undercut these days by, you know, technologies like your phone, which tend to be isolating and trick you into spending more time looking at screens than talking to human beings. Um, we're at a low point, I think, in, in uh, one sense, and you may have seen this statistic in the book, Americans' greatest fears in 2016 was talking to strangers. 58% of Americans, their worst fear was talking to strangers. Their fear of death, 
talking to strangers, 58%. Twice as afraid of talking to someone they don't know than, uh, than dying. So anyway, so we need a rebirth of community in this country. We had it before. We can have it again. And I think that kind of communal spirit is really what we're trying to tap into. And I'll say one other thing. There's a lot of folks I talk to in the environmental movement who will say, oh, Doug, you're into that climate stuff. Well, you know, the federal government really needs to lead. So that's a nice thing to want, you know, but I've been watching the federal government my whole life, and this is not an issue they're going to lead on anytime soon. In or out of Paris Accords is fine. It's a small incremental policy thing. The economy of our country is done by individuals, by small businesses, is decided in neighborhoods, streets, and towns across the country. The power is at the bottom. It's not at the top. And so we distract ourselves. And I think kind of get ourselves off the hook by waiting for someone else to be the leader. I think we all are leaders. We all really need to step up. And the book is, takes this theory of change. It says, you know, a lot of why we haven't been stepping up is that we aren't really quite sure what to do. So the book has 70 different patterns that you could apply either in your neighborhood um, or uh, in your community um, and, and make those little local kind of ideals, little utopias. One is, there's a bunch devoted to energy, you know, design every building as though it were, um, you know, a meeting the energy code of the future, something called Passive House. So like that could be every project that Amanda Gates does and, and all of your listeners and all of their, their friends. Uh, there's another one about um, every neighborhood should throw a party. Throw a party. I mean, that is not that hard. That is very American. And I, I don't mean just a uh, let's grill some meat, which is always good, but like let's get together and learn each other's kids' names, and maybe even talk about, you know, what we can do to make our neighborhood better, things like that. So anyway, I, it is the book, at the core of the book is the premise that the reason we aren't moving faster is that we individually aren't engaged, and that we don't know, we've lost the skills called neighboring, you know, to be a neighbor, and to support the people around us, and to, and to um, you know, and to and get ask for support when you need it back and forth and to work cooperatively with people towards a greater common goal. Wouldn't it be great, Amanda, if every project you did that's got great feng shui and is environmentally, uh, you know, uh, well, well accomplished, inspired 10 other projects on the block. It's like, wow, people saw Amanda's project. It's like, gosh, I want to do it too. That's what we're talking about. A contagion, a sharing, a kind of let's, let's do this. I'm going to do it and put, do it with me and let's do it together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I love that at the core, you talk about rebuilding community and, and getting people to connect again. And, and I loved the idea of, in the preface, you talked about how, you know, 100 years ago, you used to look at a street and it would be filled with people. And now you look at a street that's filled with cars. And our behavior and our habits is all around this idea of being a loner. It's like we we are in our car, we go into a building, we leave the building, we get back in our car, we go home, and it's like we're so isolated. And my professor uh, works directly under Professor Lin, who was HH um, Grandmaster Professor Lin, uh, feng shui practitioner hmm. who brought feng shui over to uh, the U.S. And he talked about in the early, like late 1990s, early 2000s, this idea that uh, he could already see it on the horizon that people were going to start having what he called as strange chi. And he said, we're going to mm. see an increase in suicides and we're going to see an increase mm. in depression and uh, mental illness due to the fact that people are going to become so isolated because there is a lack of connection 
and uh, his, his legacy was really built on this idea to reconnect the energy in our environments and really get people to reconnect and uh, build homes with front porches. That was a big thing for him to, you know, be communal and have parties and network and get out yeah. and talk to people and get off your technology. So that really rang true to my heart yeah. when you were talking about this sense of yeah. community because it has well, been lost. Yeah. I, well, on that one, you know, the even though this book is not about new urbanism, which is a design movement that I'm very active in, which is, you know, literally the people that put porches back on the fronts of houses. Um, it's that's sort of at the center of the book. There's a chapter of patterns called the term collective effervescence. And I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it's a really cool old idea from a sociologist named Emil Durkheim. And he studied uh, developing societies and watched the phenomenon of kind of religious practices where people would, you know, dance themselves into a lather or dance in circles around the fire or chant together or whatever and watch that as a sort of social phenomenon to understand what effect it had on people. And he described it as collective effervescence, which is this idea that you believe, the people doing it believe they are having a shared experience with the other people around them. Even though we're individuals, our brains, our perceptions are completely different, we believed that we were closer to the people around us. And that can happen at a sporting event, that can happen at a music concert, that can happen in all kinds of ways, and it can and should happen, I think, more in neighborhoods. Now, there's one um, bit of research I did for the book, which was a trip to a festival in the desert in Nevada called Burning Man. Hmm. And it was pure research. I did not enjoy any moment of it at all. Um, I'm joking. It was wonderful because <laughs> um, media, you know, your phones don't work, and you're simply there to... Um, a, interact with the people around you. And uh, there are 10 principles of Burning Man. One of the patterns in the book is hold a local event based on the principles of Burning Man. And the 10 are, number one, seek out strangers. So this whole fear of strangers, well, go find the person that you don't know that may be setting the tops of their shoes because they're kind of shy. Seek them out. The person that's different from you, that's you know different color, different hair, different gender, whatever it is, seek them out because they may have the most to offer you. Um, and there are lots of other uh, patterns in, in Burning Man. One, the other one I really love is give gifts. So that sounds like there's wrapping and bows involved, not at all. It is the idea that we are accustomed as a society to gift exchanges. I give you something, you give me something back. So it's a reciprocity. In this case, it is simply an attitude towards the world to say, my job or the thing that gives me joy is to give all day, to be generous. And Winning for me is giving more than I get. So, so that that kind of attitude towards the world is can be in short supply. So I think um, uh, you know a lot of the book also discusses this one idea. Even though the things we seek are external changes, you know, a better relationship between the built environment and nature, better relationship between our daily lives and lifestyle and our impact on the planet, all those kinds of things. Those the real work is internal and quiet. I think it is kind of the the sort of spiritual centering to say we're going to do this the right way and then the manifestations are the result of that but the work the work is not just the manifestation it is also the internal work so it's a little hard for a book to uh, communicate that but that is certainly uh, true in this case and i think i go i put my center put my finger on this this center of insight that says we as human beings are wired for a bunch of things one is tribalism which is to be an identify 
identified member of this group and therefore oftentimes in opposition to other tribes. You're not a member of my tribe, you're inferior, you're worth less to me, all those kinds of things. And so those are, we're wired for that. That got us through uh, several million years of, uh, of evolution. So good for us. But now that we're sort of advanced folk, you know, we have to work to kind of overcome some of these things. And so I do think though, that we have a wiring in our lives that says, we will invest in the place we have sunk our roots. And whether the tribe is homogeneous genetically or whatever, there's a, a tribe that is a spatial tribe. The people on your block, the people in your neighborhood, the people in your subdivision are people you share you know, a life with and investment with. And I think that that's, um, you know, in current sort of polite society, it's considered rude to sort of talk to people uh, you know, over the fence or, you know, other than kind of, hi, how are you, but to actually engage people. And I think that that shyness is not helping us and it's also not making us happy. I mean, the other thing that's interesting that the book um, documents and, you know, didn't stumble over this was known, but the thing that makes you, makes us happy in life is not a new red sports car or, a, a, you know, a six bedroom house instead of a four bedroom house. It is lifelong relationships with family and friends. That's the Amen. thing that when, when you're 80 or you're 20 or you're 100, that's the thing that you want more of. It's not how many cars did I have or how big was my house. None of that stuff. It's not the material stuff. It is relationships. And so to design neighborhoods, back to this idea of the anchor being the neighborhood of the community, to design neighborhoods that are welcoming your whole life, that don't kick you out because the housing need of your age is not available, you know, how many subdivisions in America have the same house built 300 times? And if you happen to be a widow or an empty nester or something like that, and you really now need just a one or two bedroom unit, it's not available. You have to physically move and tether all your day-to-day -day ties with your neighbors and your friends, which is unhappiness. So anyway, there's a lot of the patterns which are all about self-governing neighborhoods and, and setting them up to be places that you will want to stay your whole life. Why? Because that's what makes us happy. I agree with everything that you said, and I love what you said about gift giving. Um, that's actually one of the things that we're also taught in my school of feng shui is the idea mm. of doing good deeds every single day. Yeah. We spoke often about, um, you know, going into everything with community and compassion and kindness and, and networking, yeah. um, but doing good deeds every day, whether smiling, buying somebody a cup of coffee, giving yeah. something, you know, just always with a giving heart and being the generosity. Yeah that's lacking uh, in our culture. Um, as we wrap up here, I am just curious, you know, it, it, you, you put a lot of thought and time and effort into this book and it's very thorough, very comprehensive, a lot of uh, great information, but I'm curious of all the, the information that's in it, did you have a favorite chapter or a favorite thing that just really lit you up uh, that's in it? Wow, that's a great question. Um, there was a series, I will just say the writing, researching and writing the book was an emotional roller coaster. It started, the book started out, the part I knew that was going to be in the book was the patterns, urban design patterns for the future. And that was really where it started. And that was a multi-year collaboration with 70 contributors. And that was a series of just, uh, you know, almost weekly delights where we would typically, uh, we were working with someone we knew or knew by reputation called them up and said, you know a topic, here's what we're doing, we're trying to identify patterns for the future, tell us what your opinion of the future is. And then we would listen. And 
smart people would talk. And you, if you're a per, an ideas person or a passion person or a forward-minded person, you know, you couldn't, I would pay so much money to have had the experience of interacting with all these people, let alone listening and saying, aha, you just spoke the gem. That gem you just said is this pattern. We're going to go with that one. And so time and again, it was just sort of alchemy. Like it just, it came together. So that was brilliant. And then the front end of the book about how uh, long change takes was running in parallel to that. And we didn't really know the results until a year, more than a year into the research to find out, Jesus, all takes much longer than any of us had hoped. And so the middle of the book, the kind of accelerants and the kind of really the, the most, um, the freshest, newest, no one else has done this before part of the book came of necessity as a bridge to connect this, these outcomes that I knew were good and, and, and add value to lives to this front end of like, geez, we got to figure out how to change faster. Well, guess what? Research applied. We actually have figured this out. We know the accelerants. We know how to do this. And so, so that kind of indecision, it was a period of months of like, Jesus, is this book even a good idea? It's so, you know, depressing to all of us. Like, but no, in, again, the kind of great insight, maybe this is, answers your question. The great, it's, it's not a, like a happy, jubilant joy, but the great profound satisfaction of having laid out the path we're all on and never knew it. You know, here's what our kind of our current carbon reversal timeline looks like is one sobering, a little scary, but fundamentally it's where you have to start. And so we've been in, we've been in the darkness, we've been blind uh, and not knowing that, you know, and, and nothing immobilizes people like fear and fear of the unknown. So what we now have is we took fear of the unknown and replaced it with uh, anger at the known which is I'm not, that, I'm not afraid anymore. I know what it looks like. Okay, that's a worst case scenario. We can do better. So now, you know, all of the normal human instincts to say, let's pitch in and do better than this. You know, that now is in, in some ways, that's what the book is about is now that we've seen the future and it's scary and it's bad, so what? We're going to make the future we want regardless. I think the book has a lot of really great information. I would encourage people to uh, take a look at it. Um, it's uh, called Sustainable Nation Urban Design Patterns for the Future. I think it has a lot of really great information, but I think that the one, that I, the, the one thing that I really gleaned from it was this idea that you actually have a solution. You're offering ways yeah. to really reverse it. Um, and have a solution within four generations, which I think is quite powerful. And I think that um, rather than going into it either with our head in the sand or going into it with fear that, well, that's somebody else's problem. I'm not a leader. I don't have the money. I don't have the, you know, the networking. I don't know enough people. Um, it really gives uh what I feel are tangible tips to really get you started. And if nothing else, the awareness of what um, neighborhoods should look like and how you should act within your neighborhoods or, or getting outside mm -hmm. and, and interacting with other people. And, and like you said, it's not about the Porsche or the house or the, you know, all the, the material things, um, but really getting back to our roots of the being in the tribe and, and having connection and helping one another out. Um, if you could leave any one thing with the audience today, what would that be? Um, the takeaway I would leave people with is if the world around you isn't the one you want, and that's probably true for almost all of us, um, the worst thing you can do is to assume someone else is fixing it for you. 
that doesn't happen and that doesn't work. And so the great insight of the book, one of them is this idea that we should all act in those realms of our life where we have the greatest agency. So for example, if you don't like how the world is going, we don't have the ability to fix that. If you don't like how the country is going, same. We should of course all vote. We should of course all be involved and passionate. But we should not let our emotions go up and down over stuff that we really can't control. The things we can control are our daily lives, the work we do, and the people around us. And that's where we are big fish in a small pond and can really make a difference. And I think the most powerful thing is for people to have confidence. Read the, read the book called Sustainable Nation. Um, understand that we're at this point in time where we actually finally understand what we face and that it's knowable. We should not be afraid of it. And that knowing it and that having a deadline for when we want to get there allows us to make a plan going forward. And all those plans start with getting your um, focus right, uh, starting with small projects close to home or close to work or close to family, and hopefully to inspire others around you. And uh, you know, the book provides methods to do that through these patterns. If you can't visualize what to do, Grab the book, grab a pattern. And by the way, I don't know if Amanda's mentioned it, it is a beautiful coffee table book. So not only is it you know, science-y and it's got beautiful diagrams and beautiful photographs, uh, it could sit on your coffee table and would start a thousand conversations. I trust me, it's in, in my dentist's office lobby now and she's calling me it's like people are talking about it in the chair and i need to do dental work yeah and i would just say small projects that are close to home i think that's a great point you mentioned solar panels um, depending on where you live you know, that may be an option for some people but you could even go a little bit smaller um i've got uh i live in an hoa i can't have solar panels but one of the things that i can have is rain barrels so i do everything that i possibly can for water conservation and you know, I was the geek too when I was in high school going around and turning off all the lights. So, um, yeah, you know, yeah. paying attention to dirty electricity and, and, you know, the electronics that you have in your home and um, just all the little things add up. And uh, another one of my favorite things is you have a picture in the book that has dotted lines on a piece of uh, asphalt and it says, this would be a nice place for a tree. I yeah. love that. I think that uh, if anybody could uh, glean something from this, plant a tree. It makes a difference and it matters. And we are, the deforestation of our forests is mm -hmm. astronomical and they help reduce carbon mm -hmm. that you're going to see too. So um, little things like that I think matter. Um, Doug, if they are interested in learning more about you, where can they find you? Well, they can find uh, my uh, link to my firm, Far Associates at farside.com, F-A-R-R-S-I-D-E.com. And then the official website for the book, Sustainable Nation, is actually called thepatternproject.org, thepatternproject.org. And if you get on there, if you, don't, if you can't buy the book or you want to kind of learn more, all of the patterns in the book are replicated there at the Pattern Project website. So we really are trying to get the word out, even if people can't afford uh, to buy the book. And uh, maybe my last closing thing, my last closing thing is that there are a bunch of suggestions in the book that are free to act on or cheap to act on. Organize your neighbors, throw a party. Um, like you were saying, stencil a little symbol on the sidewalk to say, we'd love a tree here. 
put up a blackboard and have your neighbors write their dreams on it. You know, these are, these are ways to connect to the hum humanity that surrounds you. We have some huge gaps between ourselves and people in immediate proximity to where we are with, with whom we share a future and we share a lot of interests and we share overall, maybe more than anything else, potential, potential to make change, but we are separated from them. So I think I would make, I would empower people to realize they're leaders that they're doing good things and that people will appreciate that um, as they move forward and you will inspire others and they will inspire you back. And uh, it's a virtuous, positive cycle. Yes, small change makes big impacts. Thank, Thank you for you. coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate that you said yes and, and shared with my audience today this amazing book. Again, it's called Sustainable Nation, Urban Design Patterns for the Future. And you can find that on Doug's website. And I will also have a link in the show notes on our website as well, where you can find all of this information along with his website. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Amanda. Feng Shui is about properly aligning energy so you increase flow and abundance to create the life that you've always dreamed of. Now, this eco thing may have appeared out of thin air for a lot of you. However, I have been eco and green well over 15 years, and I actually grew up this way. If you've read my new book, Easy Everyday Habits to Be More Eco-Friendly, I share my story with my bona fide hippie mom. And here's the thing. Feng shui is not only applied to our homes, this idea of getting the energy right is also true for our neighborhoods, our cities, our states, the country, and Mama Earth. Everything that Doug was talking about, this idea of being able to talk to our neighbors over the fence, being able to have those communities where we enrich our lives because we actually have connection with humans that is what's going to make the difference, not the materialistic things. And here are some fun facts that talk about the way that we are behaving and what we are doing to our planet. We are truly parasites. And that is why I wanted to have Doug on the show today. His book shows us how to change our landscapes. He actually has a guide of how to change those cities and neighborhoods for the better. And now more than ever, this matters. Americans use over 500 million straws a day. The average person consumes 176 gallons of water per day. On average, the family of four produces over 17 pounds of trash a day. And the slash and burn techniques of the Southeast Asian rainforest for cheap palm oil in 2015 the carbon emissions that that was putting off a day was more than the U.S. economy. Now, if you don't know about the conflict around palm oil, I need you to Google it right now. It will bring you to your knees. Why? Because everything that we purchase, everything that we buy from our cosmetics to our lotions to our foods, our cheap foods, has palm oil in it. And because of greed and buying off politicians, people are going in and wiping out entire ecosystems to grow palm plantations for the palm oil because it makes their pockets fatter. Here's the thing. Our lives have become more comfortable, easier, and richer than in any other time in history. 
I should also mention that this ease has come at a great cost. We are taxing the hell out of our planet. We have become fatter, lazier, more fatigued, and more stressed. Addictions are at an all-time high, and due to an increase in depression, we're more dependent on mood-altering drugs than ever before. We are demanding and want instant gratification. We seek the highs and we fear the lows, and damn it, we cannot consume fast enough. If you ask me, this sounds like an all-night college bender that's 50 years overdue. We need to start making change. If we don't, beautiful things like coral reefs are going to be extinct by 2050. That's only 30 years away. So start making everyday habits to be more eco. Whether you get it from Doug's book, Sustainable Nation, Easy Everyday Habits, or the eco book from the bookstore that lights you up, start making changes every day. Start to get to know your neighbors. Start building community because your government is not going to handle this. Going local and starting a movement, the grassroots movement, is how we are going to create change. All right, everyone, I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and I hope that you want to join Doug and I on this journey of changing our ways, making this healthy, thriving planet that she can absolutely be. Bring her back to all of her glory by changing our habits. If you have questions or comments, you can reach out to us at letschat at thegatescompany.com. If you want more information and show notes about Doug's book, where you can purchase it and how you can find him, you can head on over to our website now, gatesinteriordesign.com. And hey, trust the vibe because the energy never lies.